Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stammel Major, and welcome to the 100th episode. Can you believe it? <laughs> but four years or whatever it is. I think I've, I'm in an interesting situation at the moment because I've got two like diverse group of friends who are coming together for the first time at a party. And um, you'll decide very quickly which one of the groups of friends you're in. Um, if you're uh, thinking that I've been doing pretty good putting out quite a lot of content recently, then you're in one <laughs> one group. The people who um, did not get disconnected from the podcast in about September of last year. If you're thinking, Jesus, I haven't heard anything from this guy for ages, and then loads of stuff drops, like his admin's terrible, that's because you're in the other group of people um, who were on the wrong side of a kind of knife that dropped at Apple on the 29th of September, where certain administration's decisions were made without me, and uh, the result was that the old version of the archive, of the podcast was archived, which means all the reviews it had, all the ratings it had, all of the statistics and what have you, like 140,000 downloads, it's all just gone and you're just starting from scratch. So from my point of view, I just saw this massive drop off in the numbers that I kind of monitor and um, just realized, I think, with a, a clunk how important it was to me to do the podcast and that uh, there could be real benefits. Uh, I had a fantastic opportunity last year to meet some people who've been listening to the podcast and watching the YouTube stuff and had been inspired to go sailing, um, you know, because of it. So that's a, a, a weighty responsibility and one that I uh, want to live up to. And uh, I guess uh, for those uh, who have suddenly discovered there's all this extra content, hello, I've turned over a new leaf. And for everybody else, look, stand by, because what's going to happen is in the next episode, another like knife will fall within the admin at Apple and if you have been listening loyally over the last uh, three months or something and you discover that there is no podcast after this, this is podcast 100. Literally the next day, I promise you, there'll be podcast 101. If you don't see 101, just go to the catalogue at Apple, reselect the Mariner. We've got that new artwork now with the boat standing on its tail, zooming through the Southern Ocean. Um, click on that and you're back subscribed again. It's just unfortunately the way I've got to do it because otherwise I lose all of the stuff that I put all that effort to uh, to doing in between zero and episode 88. So we're here now. That's where I'm at. That's what's going on. The good news is that uh, there's now many thousands of people listening to this once again, which is fantastic. And I would say that the period of time that I've spent just doing it kind of uh, with a lot less folks listening has made me realize the unique um, relationship that you end up in when you're sitting listening to somebody on a regular basis. Like I listen to audiobooks all the time. I consume a lot of Joe Rogan podcasts and I have like memories of being particular places listening to particular podcasters talking or particular audiobooks. I have strong associations between um, you know important realms of my life and things that I'm doing and uh, and people that I listen to. So that's also part of my responsibility on this side. So um, let me do better with that. What I would say is that I've been massively um, inspired by doing the Mariner's Library and I was absolutely adamant that we were going to like get back basically the original versions of the two podcasts, not just the Mariner podcast, but both the podcasts, get back the original versions because it included a review actually of the Mariner's Library where someone had said um, uh, people will listen to these recordings for generations to come and I thought yes exactly that's what I'm trying to do that's exactly it and then they'd written beneath it thank you for safeguarding this knowledge and I thought yes that's it even if one in a thousand people gets it there is deep 
meaningful knowledge in these books and not just the sailing stuff, but also the interconnectivity. I think that's something that I've become very aware of doing the podcast uh, pretty pretty regularly and reliably in the last couple of months. Hint, hint, have a look at the Mariner's Library. The, the point is that I am getting connected to the stories and to my role in it, which is to be a little bit of a conduit and move this... Um, you know, this kind of like ossified knowledge. It's in a book, which was the best they could do in the day. Um, we can't make a film out of it realistically, but we can we can speak it in this way and the, so, the stories go on. You start to realise the people that are having these experiences on these boats, they were just exactly the same as, as you and I. And, you know, the thing is like, with the podcast, I sit in the background and I can see statistics of the kinds of people that are listening to this. And basically it goes like this. More than likely, you're uh, over 45 years old male and living in a kind of western country now there are loads of people who are not in that i totally get it but we all understand how bell curves works and this kind of thing unfortunately sailing kind of focuses in on this particular kind of uh group of folks who um see i'm told we have all the privileges it doesn't feel that way um i think there's an opportunity to also recognize the humanity of these other people from a very similar group who are doing incredibly difficult things um, that we ourselves would be highly challenged to do and that they were having the same human experience and that there's a lot of beautiful poetry and prose written about these things, enormous emotion, enormous um, emotional um, uh, storms going on inside sailors who set off and go and do these kind of things. So that's that's what I'm getting out of the Mariner's Library. It's definitely re inspired me um to 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 double down and, and do as much of that as i can i've been working on the audio with a, uh, an engineer to try and get it better and better so things are going good there things are going good with the um the the, the numbers coming back up now we've got apple back online so overall looking good and looking forward to 2024 um i've got some uh, interesting sailing projects on the stocks but also some interesting ideas for the podcast and for youtube um, which hopefully will bring you more uh, useful and interesting content you know it's kind of tricky to make sailing stuff interesting if you just focus on the the what's covered in every other video out there but once you get into the people once you get into the um, the background the history the traditions the the law um, it, it's I think sailing is uh, obviously I've dedicated a lifetime to it so I think it's pretty awesome so um, in spirit of that uh, I'm going to be concentrating on a project uh, in the next uh, couple of months which is uh, looking at Joshua Slocum so in these little uh, dog watch uh, episodes which are only going to be about half an hour long this it's episode 100 it's going to be a bit different a little bit chatty um, but these dog watch things the dog watch is a normal period of work on a vessel at sea but it's half the length used to kind of like keep people from staying on the same watches over and over again I don't know why because I love being on the same watch over and over again but on these dog watches what I'm thinking to do is uh, just delve into the life of Slocum a little bit more because from research I've been doing it pretty much the lens that we see him through is one that was created in the 1950s and 60s by a group of people who are you know fantastic researchers and actually had the opportunity to go and meet Hetty his second wife go and meet his uh, uh, surviving children but they were not sailors and they didn't see it necessarily in the same way that uh, a sailor would do my observations of what I can see on board the spray towards the end of its life is that you've got a boat which was painted white in an era where things weren't really painted and used in the way that Slocum's using it as a little trader. And so it's got a lot of paint knocked off it. It's doing a huge number of miles, so it's kind of dirty and scuffed and covered in seaweed and what have you on the outside. And I see a man who's getting older plainly, but um, I don't necessarily see the wear and the tear and the rot that people say started to befuddle him at the end of his life. 
and that led to him <clears throat> pardon me, sailing away in 1908 or was it 1909 seems to be some confusion there and disappearing off probably just lost his mind at sea or fallen off the side or what have you i see something different i see someone who's still very much on his game and is probably getting ready to do something to save himself financially once again and my research and the research that's you know widely available there's no no secret there says that he was talking about going up the Orinoco River and I know from my research he had a lot of connectivity to South America his first wife was buried there huge parts of his life started and ended in South America um, that's absolutely I think where he went so I'm going to do some gentle research in the outside to try and like open up his story a little bit and kind of uh, share somewhat of his uh, his uh, his tale uh, to try and connect again in a way we I connect with you when I talk to you through this. You write a little question here and tell me that and I learn something over here. We're all trying to connect with each other. That's the medium we have. These people are connecting to us through time with the Mariner's Library and the stories they've written. I wonder if there's a way of using our skill set as sailors to kind of analyse the last part of Slocum's life and work out if there's a possibility that he did go somewhere else because uh, I have two ideas. Either he went to uh, the Orinoco River, as he said, or he went to um, Samoa, which is where he met Robert Louis Stevenson's widow, who was quite taken with and would be a perfect contrapont for his own style as an adventurer and, uh, and a, 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 a literary, well, I got to say, a literary uh, aficionado. I didn't really realize that when I read Slocum the first time round here on this podcast. I kept saying in the narratives that I did about the bits I'd you know, bits I'd read, that uh, he had a very good editor. Um, I don't think that's actually right. I think he was uh, much more learned and much more read than I realised and much more um, ready to use writing as a way of promoting his trip around the world and uh, and create, you know, he, he did honestly himself create a book uh, out of his own actions, which uh, will, will last, well, longer than any of us that the the first person to sail uh west around the world is big enough story that the fact that they were first person ever sail solo around the world is even more incredible um i found a, a, a little comment here in uh, a book that i'm reading at the moment about captain slocum just to give you an idea of the things i wanted to bring up although this is not going to be the the main content of today's show but just uh to appreciate for a second uh the skill set of the person that we're talking about when we talk about captain slocum just have a listen to this he says, In hundreds of years, many passages had been made through the Strait of Magellan, but as W.S. Barclay, the English geographer, pointed out, three among them all will not be forgotten. The first is that of the discoverer. The second, Sir Francis Drake's, without charts, he sailed through end to end in sixteen days. The third is that of Captain Slocum. His, in point of pure seamanship, has been called the most remarkable of all. All alone, he both navigated and sailed. At the western entrance, he single-handedly survived a Cape Horn equinoctial gale. He passed an entire night cruising and tacking in one of the worst death traps of the Seven Seas. Finding his own way to re-enter the Straits, he sailed again to Cape Pillar, thus circumnavigating the worst triangle that any mariner could ask for. Isn't that incredible? Is someone going to say that about the sailing that you've done? I, they're definitely not going to say it about mine. <laughs> They'll be saying things like he's lucky to have got round. But uh, no, how I think it's incredible to kind of um, recognise just how uh, how skilled he was, how audacious he was to go and do the things he was, but also how driven he was by his own internal personal uh, um, situation 
that uh, he would embark on something and how that might colour the decisions he'd make thereafter. If he wasn't losing the, losing the plot, would he really have fallen off the side of the boat? Well, of course, you can always maybe fall off the side of the boat, but it's pretty cagey by the fact uh, he'd sailed west around the world solo in that boat and then traded it for another, like, five or six years up and down the coast between Maine and the Caribbean. He pretty much knew that boat. So, of course, you can fall off at any point. You can get ill. Lots of things can happen, but... Most of those situations, a boat would be found sailing, and a lot of uh, people were very much more on the lookout for that kind of stuff, boats just tossing around with the sails all over the place. The spray was very famous, and it was in one of the most navigated areas of water, you know, pretty much in the world. You're just talking about the storm that they're saying he went into and may not have got out of is at the same latitude as New York and only a couple of hundred miles from the entrance to the uh, the harbour there. So it was a very well-navigated piece of water. If he'd gone off the side, it's quite likely the boat would have been seen thereafter. She was incredibly seaworthy. So, I don't know, I have this suspicion that something more is in that story, and I think uh, it'd be fun to kind of investigate it a little bit. So, we'll have a look at that in the next couple of dog watches. Um, today, what I want to do is uh, access a fantastic repository of questions which I get asked, and uh, I can make them into an amazing resource whilst I am... Uh, speaking here on the podcast but if I have to answer them in the format that they're asked it becomes a massive chore so in terms of being absolutely pragmatic I'm going to look at the YouTube comments some of which require very long answers to give you know kind of proper answer and uh, we can have a bit of fun with it so if you want to write a comment uh, of course csmthemariner at gmail.com for an email I do love hearing your sailing stories and uh, if not have a look at something on YouTube there and uh, comment bear in mind that the things that are in the comments don't have to have anything to do with the videos so <laughs> i still see them as they come through here it's very easy to chat and then i'll just put a little note in and tell you which uh, episode of the podcast is in so that you can hear the answer so um, the thing that inspired me to do this um, is that uh, somebody was asking me about heaving too so now of course what i have to do is uh, look around in a load of stuff online whilst uh, you guys uh, twirl your thumbs, waiting for me to find it. Here we go. Oh, 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 yeah, here we go. I was just watching some of your older videos, and I was wondering about heaving to on a race boat, or what to do if you need a flat boat in rough weather. That's a very good question. Okay, so there are two very separate, very different uh, situations there, both of which can happen, both of which are big pressure relievers uh, to a crew who are stressed, or in a medical situation where you need to get somebody flat and get the boat stabilized. Well, there's a number of um, mechanical reasons why you might want to do either of these two things, okay? With uh, heaving two, obviously, you have the benefit of stopping the boat effectively in its track, you know, speaking metaphorically, you stop the boat. Um, obviously, it's still going to be subject to uh, a certain amount of drift, a certain amount of leeway, a certain amount of whatever forces are pushing around on that body of water and the dynamics of the sails and the hydro lock and all the rest of it. But basically it's stopped, right? The running before the wind can massively reduce the number of work cycles that particularly the rig goes through um, that you would be otherwise exposed to if you were going to just ride it out um, hove to in, in weather. Um, there's a third one which we could kind of like point at here, which is uh, putting out a sea anchor. And uh, I have had the opportunity to 
do this on many occasions in race boats, which is what we can talk about here. We've also, through the Mariner's Library, been literally reading about all sorts of very heavy weather situations and people doing the same kind of thing. Um, for a number of the stories in the White Sails Shaking anthology I've been reading, um, because it's a kind of anthology of like the worst moments. It is a funny thing to read that, an anthology of sailing stories, because it all tends to be um, the absolute worst things that can happen, which... Um, is, is a thing definitely that sailing is uh, uh, stuck with, that um, if you've done any kind of offshore sailing, first thing people want to know is, you know, what's the worst weather you've ever been in? What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? It's like, they, I don't think they ask questions like that to like people that do golf or even, race. well, I suppose racing, they might say, have you ever crashed? But um, golf, tennis, those kind of things, that's when you know they're not that interesting, don't you? That's when people have to ask you like existential questions at the opening as soon as you tell them what you're into. I'm into sailing. Wow. Tell me about God. Um, Okay, so heaving to in a race boat. I just read an account um, by a guy called William Washburn Nutting. He was the editor of the Rudder magazine in the 20s, and he was lost on a transatlantic voyage. Um, He wrote about the preceding transatlantic voyage that he did, and uh, his account is uh, harrowing, to say the least. Um, But it does give us some like literally technical details of things that he observed in this extreme situation. So to cut, you know, a long story very short, go and listen to it on the Mariner's Library, the boat ends up in a situation where they are like the last ditch effort is to put out this makeshift sea anchor from the bows. And other than that, like they don't know what they're going to do. As we're just about to do this manoeuvre, one of them gets washed over the side of the boat and they do manage to, in effect, to rescue and get him back on the boat. Brilliant. But they do it at the sacrifice of that they can't get the sea anchor out. There's not enough of them to deploy it. So the boat just lies in the trough of the waves, just rolling and rolling and rolling with the, the waves as they break over her. And um, by the time they've got him back on board the boat, they're like, well, we can't. They they try doing the sea anchor thing. It, it doesn't work. The line immediately snaps. And like, well, we'll just go back to what we were doing when we were rescuing him, which is just lying in the trough. And that's on a 40 foot boat. Okay, so there are some mechanics at work here, which we have to observe uh, first. The design of the boat is very, very important. And the question is correctly uh, phrased because it's about race boats. The difference with race boats these days, particularly, is you've probably got a modified keel and um, some kind of skeg or independent rudder. Uh, you can have a, like a, a real true race boat keel, which is incredibly exposed, very thin uh, strip of name your material going down to a very heavy bulb of name your material, which is T-shaped. So it's like designed to catch everything, designed almost to rip the bottom of the boat out. And then behind it is a completely unencumbered, completely unprotected rudder. Now, pretty much all the boats I sail are like that. So I'm very, very aware that having very little um, in the water in terms of appendages massively affects heaving too. Up from that in terms of usability is where you've got like a modified fin keel. So it's, uh, you know, it's 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 small. It's not bulbous. It's not huge. It's not connected to the bow and the stern post by any kind of material. It's not connected to the back of the boat or the rudder post by any kind of material. It just juts out the bottom of the boat in whatever profile the designers come up with. And there's not much to it. And that means that there's not much lateral resistance forward of the like a imagine a spike driven through the boat roughly around the mast or just a forward of the keel that's where you can like spin the boat around um, if it's all flat underneath there then the boat can um, slip slide from side to side very very easily to make it very uh, adept at turning and, and intricate maneuvers right race boat ish it's also the entryway into a flat underside which is great for surfing and planing and being off the 
off the wind and going fast, the less um, appendages you've got in the water, the less uh, induced drag, and uh, that means the boat goes quicker. The best way though to protect the rudder at the back is to put a skeg just ahead of it. It's a small increase in surface area. It's a lot more protection for the rudder and it means that rather than having to be uh, mounted up through a rudder stock going vertically up through the boat above the rudder, it can be hinged onto the back of something which is a much simpler mechanical connection. So one up from outright race boat is a modified fin keel and skeg hung rudder. And then beyond that, we're looking at vessel hull shapes which are going back towards the more traditional so if we stick with um, race boats heaving to creates a couple of issues the first one is that um, there's not much of the boat in the water and the hydraulics of the situation are just as important as the aerodynamics over the sail a boat is an interface between two separate fluid dynamic systems one above the water line operating in the air the other below the water line operating in the water right so those fluid dynamic systems are hydraulic and aerodynamic and bringing the boat to a standstill is a game of balancing those two systems against each other the interplay of the keel with the rudder and the rudder keel combination with the sail plan is how you heave to it's not just that you do this thing with the sails and then the boat stops it's that you bring the boat to a particular point of balance and you're going to have to work out how to do that with your keel hull <laughs> sail combination does that make sense i think so so sailboats the first problem with them is that the mainsails are often like way overpowered you'll notice that particularly these days we've got big square top mainsails there's a lot of mainsail mainsail is a super useful sail upwind downwind and all the rest of it and as our understanding of fluid dynamics has changed from the late 90s onwards when we had computers that can actually finally do the calculations necessary to be able to understand what's going on we have realized that um, it's better for boats to be in a, a state of imbalance um, and then power you know in terms of trying to power a boat up a race boat that's what we're talking about it's better to be in a state of imbalance and then bring that imbalance into a acutely focused moment of performance much in the way that uh, modern aerodynamics uh, operate on the surfaces of uh, fighter aircraft they are inherently aerodynamically unstable but uh, computerized control or very considered control can bring them into a point of balanced performance where you get uh, incredible returns so with the mainsails on sailing boats these days we have massive mainsails and relatively small in performance terms normally non-overlapping headsails like you look at the jib car tracks on a modern race boat they go across the boat the jib does not extend beyond them there is no fore and aft adjustment required there's non-overlapping headsails so mainsails have got bigger headsails have got smaller and that means as you come into the heave to situation the boat is carrying a lot of speed and all you're doing essentially is like applying a brake it's kind of like skating along in brand new 1970s white boots quad roller skates it's your first day you know you're so excited everyone's looking at you okay is this just my memory or is this the same for everybody but here's the deal you're going a little bit too fast so what you do is you put one of the stoppers down and kind of drag it and you keep rolling forward and keep rolling forward and there's nothing really else to do because you don't know how to turn and stop yet that's the equivalent of trying to back the jib and then go into a heave to situation just like expecting it to happen it's not it's not going to happen like that the boat has got so much power in the mainsail that it's just going to drive right over that jib no matter what you do because it's not acting as an efficient inside-out sail. It's designed to be something else, but you drag it into that position and then it starts to you know, help this 
balanced heave to situation work but it's not good at slowing the boat down so heaving the sail across the boat i i, I go to that first because um, my method of heaving to on a boat at sea is often to drag the headsail across rather than tack the boat because in the kinds of situations that you're often asked to finally heave to in um, you don't want anything crossing the boat for me i've got running backstays i've got to move around i've got and big heavy battens in the mainsails, full batten mainsails, which if you get the backstays wrong, are going to snap all the bands, get the battens caught up in the backstays. It's like it's way too much trouble to tack a boat. It To tack an open 60 solo at sea is 30 minutes. To drag the headsail across is like two minutes. So you can guess which one I choose. So if you just did that, you would not go into a heave to, right? The idea with a heave to is that you're going to balance these, say, fluid dynamic systems above and below the waterline. And the, the jib is going to be the thing that's going to like retard and slow the boat down once we get to a position where the mainsail is completely depowered and we can start to um, use these systems against each other to stop it from powering up. Clearly, the most important job if you want to stop the boat and the main reason for heaving to is you've got to depower the mainsail. So how do we depower the mainsail? There's only one way of depowering the mainsail, and that's to get it so that it's virtually in line with the wind. Now, why am I explaining it this way around? Because surely you can just say, um, put the helm over, don't tack, you know, don't tack the jib, and the boats heave too. Well, it is in smaller boats, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about race boats. The kind of race boat problems you have is that um, you've got the main up. There's no way you can get it down properly because there's... Uh, the, the amount of pressure that's on the sliders is ridiculous and now there's so much wind that if you start cutting across the wind you may well broach out so you, you, you're running before it as hard as you possibly can and now you need to bring the boat to some kind of like point of safety so just tacking the boat over and it's going to be okay is not going to work out so you've got to think about the forces which are going to act on the final state that you want to get to the heave to and then work out how you can stack them together until the fire is lit with the stacked sticks there's no point in just putting the match into the fireplace and then adding sticks to that it's not going to work properly a race boat's got to be slowed down with some like thought pattern so the jib gets hauled over to the other side now if you're going upwind this is going to start to have some kind of effect the rest of the boat is pretty much set up for what you want to do so it should be a case then of feathering the boat up into the wind more and more and more and more and the mainsail starts to slow down and slow down and slow down and slow down until she's hovering at that point just is it going to go into irons is it going to fall back on the same tack you definitely don't want to be is it going to go onto the other tack you just want to be feathering just between you know is it going to lurch backwards on the next wave or is it going to pick up and go again a very very pinched angle of uh, sail at that point the mainsail you've got to find the right balance now the jib is backed you're not doing anything else with the jib you can ease the sheet a little bit and create change the forces but in this initial stage you should have an inside out jib it's on the wrong side of the boat you've driven up to windward and as you drove up to windward with the jib already backed it has slowed the boat down slow the boat down you're now hovering at the wind like it's a race start and that mainsail it just wants to be on the edge of powering up. Now, that may well be with the traveler right down. It may be with the sheet out. That's your boat. You've got to find it out. For me, it's about traveler halfway down and about uh, that much main sheet east, right? Not huge. Maybe a meter on a 60-foot boat. So, you know, the boom goes out five degrees. Okay, so Chris here from the future. I'm just editing this podcast before I put it out. I just want to point out something which I didn't say here, which is that if you attempt to take the boat fully powered up and then tack through the eye of the wind and then head off in the new direction by not tacking the jib 
what will happen is that the back jib will rotate the bow of the boat round and the speed of the boat will carry her back off onto the other tack whereupon the mainsail will power up and you'll just be sailing on the other tack again and if you try to ease the main that's just going to induce her to go further down onto a beam reach and things are going even faster again so you've got to have the jib across before you go into the tack to stall the tack before it gets to the eye of the wind so there's no possibility for that mainsail to power up unexpectedly okay back to the show at that point um, the boat will attempt to fall back onto its uh, course right it's uh, it's it, it kind of wants to go up into the wind with the mainsail but it wants to fall back onto the course with its jib it's unstable in this situation and if it starts to back up then you've got a problem because the, um, the it may well flick itself either into attack or flick itself back on course so you've now got to lash the helm so that the boat is trying to turn into the wind now this may be that you lash the helm completely over up into the wind it may be that it's just a little bit up off center line again you've got to find it for your boat for me it's pretty much all the way up to the top so you get the boat so it's just hovering 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 and it wants to fall back down onto um, the wrong tack but the jibs inside out the jibs pulling uh, even in a retarded kind of like turning method that it's got going on because it's inside out the main's not quite powered up yet so it's just kind of pushing its way against the jib and these two quite small insubstantial forces are the only thing that's really acting on the boat one trying to push it backwards one trying to push it forwards the jib trying to push the nose down away from the wind the mainsail trying to turn the boat up into the wind and then your rudder is in position to put the heavy favor on going up into the wind so at any point if it goes over a big wave and the angle of the boat really turns or whatever it's going to turn itself back up into the wind and there should be so little power in that rounding turn up that it does automatically on its own when you're hopefully down in the cabin that there'll never be enough power for it to tack itself and set off sailing on the other side so you build the you build the uh, the heave to situation you build it out of the sticks of what you need to do the boat's got to slow down the boat's going to have no forefoot uh, ahead of the the keel there there's no grip in the ocean the boat the boat's going to want to slide sideways as soon as that back jib starts to try and take over so it's going to need a lot of rudder otherwise it's going to pivot around that thin keel and it's going to push itself back up off on course that's going to allow the mainsail to power up and then you are sailing again with a jib inside out because the mainsail is so much bigger than the jib so race boats you've got to I, I learned to roll a kayak um, because of the uh, tuition of a friend of mine Dave Bauer years back at Outward Bound I was in a situation I think I've told this once before but I was in a kayak and um, as an instructor having passed the instructor level um, uh, rollover tests and what have you and uh, I, I went for my hat which had fallen off into the water and I rolled the boat over and I was unable to roll the boat back up this is a fully laden expedition kayak a 17 foot long sea kayaking expedition boat and uh with water on deck and all sorts of stuff and i couldn't roll the boat back up and i had to pop out and it was very embarrassing and we rescued the boat and made it into a learning point and all the rest of it but i was like right i am learning how to roll a kayak and um i took tuition from dave bowie over a beer which a lot of uh, boating things are, are done in that way and um he said you've got to find your role that was how that was his tuition is like going and find out how to roll a kayak from yoda um you got to find your role and i found that piece of advice actually to be incredibly wise over the years about all sorts of things you got to find your thing so your boat i could probably get on your boat and find the uh the heave to position quite quite quickly because i've done it on a lot of unstable boats trimorans catamarans 
big classic boats, all sorts of stuff. So I know what I'm looking for. So in that way, it's a bit like finding the biting point on a clutch, right? If you're a new, uh, I'm not in any way implying that anybody's new to sailing here, but if you're new to driving a stick shift, um, finding the biting point is like trying to cast your first spell you know, as a wizard, right? It's the, how does this work? Later on, you start to know what that feels like and, and be able to deal with the forces even on like complicated hill starts and stuff. So the point being with the sailing, you got to find the point of balance that's going to be main sheet down, main sheet up. You got to think about twist. The boat's going to be pitching and weaving its way over the uh, sail, over the over the oceans rather. So you're going to have to put quite a lot of twist perhaps in that mainsail to make a big uh, flat top main not have too much drive up aloft that's going to drive the boat forward and either drive it into attack or just set it off again. And that's the problem with big boats. Like if you're in 60 foot boats at sea, um, there's always an interesting dynamic for me when people are asking like how fast does the boat go there's very few boats go upwind faster in in rough water faster than 11 12 knots it, i've driven you know 60 70 foot boats race boats classic boats big tall ships all sorts of stuff it's the it's the roughness of the water that starts to slow it down over time because it gets so um, dangerous to be going uh, over such big waves that you're going to shake the rig apart. You're going to have so many work cycles on the rig that something somewhere is going to let go and that's the end of that. Um, so the thing that you're trying to do often with a race boat first is um, slow it down and then secondly the heave to and if you know how the heave to works you'll recognize that you can ease into the heave to by building up your, uh, your, your balanced situation and that includes most importantly slowing the boat down. I can remember being in the middle of the Atlantic with um, Al Jones on a 60-foot um, Whitbread. No, 60-foot Volvo, in fact. Um, I know, 10 years ago, something now. And uh, we were hurtling through the night. And uh, I wasn't the uh, captain on that one. Um, I was the number two, but it got to a point where it's like, hey, <laughs> I don't get what's going on here. This has got to slow down, right? My judgment is is still pretty useful <laughs> we, we have to slow this boat down and the other person was like there's no way to slow it down i was like what like we've got you know a deep reef mainsail and some kind of staysail whatever going on out there yeah it's blowing 50 knots and we're hurtling away from the weather basically um kind of broad reaching away from it at speed which lowers the apparent wind when you're in 50 knots and you're on a race boat that can do 20 knots even with that rig um but still there comes a point this is getting crazy we're like leaping over waves and what have you and um so I said, do you mind if I try something? And he, being quite stressed, said, no problem at all. And I just drew the jib across to the other side, which wasn't that hard to do because we're quite low on the wind. And then I, I walked over and took the wheel off him and just slowly brought the boat up. And it slowed down from like 11 knots, like 10, 9, few bounces, boom, kind of slowing down, hammering its uh, forefoot into the, into the huge waves and then found its angle. Okay, and then the loads start to come on as the uh, the main finds its point of power. The jib starts to get settled into its work, and you find the right amount of um, of, of of wheel over on the rudder and lash it, and uh, literally within ninety seconds, in a uh, normal speaking voice, I said, "Do you want a cup of tea?" And he just completely collapsed onto the the deck at the back, and uh, and I got him a cup of tea. But he didn't like know they had emergency brakes. Isn't that crazy? So race boats heave to absolutely um is the dog watch for me just waffling on for half an hour absolutely um is there going to be a podcast tomorrow about something else yeah absolutely there is <laughs> you see how this goes we're going to be continuing um the fantastic 
Safety at Sea Handbook by Keith Conwell, the RYA publication. We're just nearing the end of the uh, chapter about abandoning to the life raft. I've kind of, I don't feel like I've dragged it out, but I've given it all the time it needs. And we're like into this will be like the sixth episode on being in the life raft and what it's all about. But I think for my own part, having listened to what I've kind of gone through in the last couple of weeks, I have realized that it is true to say that your most challenging seamanship moments may well come in a, a a boat that is like not your main boat it's it's like the inflatable thing off the back so knowing what's in there knowing how to deal with it i think is absolutely essential so it's not untoward to uh, to take as much time as required right the safety at sea stuff like if you don't want to know it just don't listen it's just you won't know <laughs> you won't know what all the rest of us know um, okay the other thing i've got here is that uh, i wanted to have a chat about uh, something that's been uh, affecting me uh, recently, as I said, you know, we can kind of guess where the core group of people are that uh, podcast this podcast like this goes out to. Um, I'm very keen always, like have been historically for decades in an empirically provable way to make sure that all people are included in sailing. It's literally what I've dedicated myself to. But the fact remains that uh, I am part of a group as a white 46 year old man um, who is very nervous when I look out in the world right now and see all of the things that are going on, political, uh, medical, um, things which uh, seem to threaten some of the things I very much hold near and dear. And so one of the areas I've been investigating is looking at um, what courses of action are available to me if you know you get into a situation where you suddenly need to like bug out, to use a phrase which is heavily connected with the prepper community, but what is the, the opportunity to bug out as a sailor? Well, as it turns out, we're actually like... <laughs> We're basically all preppers. Do you know this? Like the people who are like making sure they've got a, a secret place that only they have access to, which has got the right amount of food, water, power, safety equipment, um, personal resources uh, available for them to be able to basically separate themselves from uh, everyday civilized reality for between one and two weeks. It's like, well, that's pretty much a boat, isn't it? So I'm going to be investigating, looking at... Uh, how we can talk a little bit about um, prepping for the apocalypse. I'm going to just say it like that uh, when you have a boat, because strangely, we're incredibly well positioned to do something. Um, and I mean that quite seriously, actually. Um, you know, you could look at this podcast a different way and say, well, it's pretty much looking at exactly how to operate this piece of machinery that promotes the ability to get away from it all for long periods of time and travel independently between continents, something which is not easily done by people who are not sailors so are we well positioned to be preppers well the, the, my story might be that we're already preppers <laughs> sorry to break it to you but you might already be a prepper if you've got a boat you just didn't know it um let's let's have a look at it because there's lots to be learned across both uh, um, spheres i think some of it doesn't really relate to what goes on on the water but um remember that the name of the character in the uh, Waterworld film is the Mariner so that's all kind of apocalypse and whatnot so uh, maybe I'm in the in the right area with that certainly have some fun with it and uh, having looked to research this I've already actually been approached by a company who wants me to review their solar generator which is interesting like a, a power supply that can replicate the output of a 2000 watt generator it's solar charged so we'll be getting that in the next couple of weeks we can put it through its paces both in the rural location where I live in Nova Scotia and uh, out on the boat but uh, lots ahead lots to be done in 2024 as I say welcome back to everybody this one is going out on Monday 
night here in Nova Scotia. So you're probably picking it up on Tuesday. Look for me on Wednesday. If you don't see me, it means that you are in a select group of much valued individuals over on Apple who will have their feed essentially terminated. Please look for me and come and find me. And then we'll all be back in one place and uh, back to the many thousands of us sitting and listening uh, and hopefully be listening more regularly as I get better at uh, putting this stuff out. But uh, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound. Look after yourself. I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.